Hey, good evening, everyone. Good to see you. Good to be here. Um, all right, I'm going to try to like get right into it as opposed to like last time when I spent a long time diatribing. Uh, the beginning of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 to 55. Okay, I'll talk better. Is that better? Um, Isaiah 40 to 55 is a section of the book of Isaiah um, that is a really, really, it's like a, a long poem. It's one of the greatest kind of poems. If like we were to come upon it today and discover it, it would, it would be heralded as a great poem. And a lot of us know it because much of the Isaiah 40, some of Isaiah 40 to 55 has been put to music in Handel's Messiah, if you've ever seen that, one of the, one of the greatest. But it starts off with, uh, I just feel like this is appropriate for Advent. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Isn't that, isn't that great? It's beautiful. Um, uh, I want to get right into, and I just want to kind of, I, I know Adam talked last time about um, discerning the signs of the times, and I just want to go back to what I was talking about two times ago about how do we understand worldview uh, not necessarily, I mean, what's it, what's it, what is an in-Messiah worldview, but how do we evaluate worldview? And it's through stories. What are the stories that we tell ourselves? What are the symbols of that worldview? What are the practices that we do without thinking? And what are the answers to five key critical questions? And I'm going to start right now again by reproposing the in-Messiah worldview and then going a little bit through the Christian story and probably just ending there. And I think that'll set us up well to talk about the purpose that the Lord has for Heart of the Redeemer. I think that actually is, will become the starting block to begin to understand what the words of the Lord are speaking to us prophetically mean and who we are. This, this will be like the foundation to, to jump into that, which, which will happen in a couple Sundays. Um, so when we, when we begin to read Paul, um, when we begin to read the gospel writers, they, let me just read a little bit more here in Isaiah 40. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our, our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Um, he then goes on to um, say this. Get up on your high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings, lift up. Fear not, says the cities of Judah. Behold your God. 
this is written at a time when uh, the temple has been destroyed and um, God has not returned to his people. But it begins to indicate through this prophetic poem the expectation, at least of the poets at the time, of the return of God to his people. This is what it's prophesying. But there was no understanding at the time when it was written that it had happened. Okay? This was not fulfilled prophecy. This was being spoken to a people who were in exile. So what I want to say was when we get to Paul and when we get to the gospel writers in particular, they are taking words directly from Isaiah 40 and applying it to what has happened in Jesus in his life. You understand that? So when, he, when um, Luke or Matthew put in the mouth of John the Baptist... I am a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. They are calling to mind all of Isaiah 40 to 55 for those people. They are saying the fulfilled time has come. So the story of the Messiah is one that's full of fulfillment. It's a story of a long journey that has reached its destiny, that its climax in a both unexpected and surprising way. And it started a dawn of a new age. That might be hard for us to understand 2,000 years later. And the key turning point in this story was Jesus. And more precisely, his death, and which was his inauguration as king, and that inauguration and that kingship was shown to be um, actually, in fact, happened when he rose from the dead three days later. For Paul, this means the old age is over, and the old covenant is done. The sun has set on that day, and a new day has dawned, you know. And in fact, when uh, Mary Magdalene and those other people come to the tomb on Easter morning, you know, they're just waking up and coming there, but guess who's already up? It's a new creation that's been birthed. God has finally acted as he always said he was going to act. And he's brought to conclusion all the yearnings and hopes of the old age with the dawning of this age to come. This is very important. From ancient philosophers, thinking was always about being in tune with the way the world really was. For Paul, being in tune with the way the world really was was being in tune with the mind of Christ and the idea of new creation. Every day is a new creation. This is hard for us to live in. We'll talk, I'll talk about why that is. It's, a lot of it is because good news isn't good news anymore for us. It's just good advice. It's a good way to live. And that's not what it was for Paul and the early Christians. Um, 
So, so what was the story that Paul was tapping in, into? And he picks up on the story of the Old Testament and says all these things that we had hoped for are coming to fulfillment and completion in Jesus. And he draws on the hopes of the Jews that God would one day come to his people in person. You can find, some, you can find that in Isaiah 40 to 55. If we go through it, you can find it in the book of Ezekiel. Um, that God was going to return to his people, that he was going to both, he was going to send his servant, David, not David, but his servant, David, a new David to rule over his people. And that that it was God that was going to be that person. In Ezekiel 20, if you read that, it's kind of like when you ask Ezekiel, well, is it your servant David or is it God? Who who is it? And I feel like Ezekiel would say, yes, (laughs) right? Um, so he draws on the hopes of the Jews that one day would come, God would come to return to his people and that God would end the exile, which in some sense had to do with their sin. Oops. Uh-oh, sorry. That was unexpected. Um, thanks. I wanted to lift it up just a little bit. Okay, there we go. I'll do that better next time. I told you, this is an unexpected journey. Um, And so it had something to do with their sins. So God was going to take care of that. And that would also mean an end to exile. In fact, end of exile meant forgiveness of sins. Because exile had so much to do with their sins. they They were interrelated. And I want to also understand, because we don't often think Jewishly enough, this was very earthy and dirty and not overly spiritual, okay? It had to do with real things in people's lives. You know, as long as the Romans are in charge, God's not. That's, you know what I mean? It's not a, and I get into this, but it wasn't about going to heaven. It was about God returning and making things right. That's the Jewish story, Okay, and um, anyway, uh, it would be an end to exile that God would be with his people. Um, And the New Testament is claiming that all of this has happened. (laughs) And and some of you, you have to start to think, what? What do you mean this has happened? Because Caesar is still in Rome, ru- ruling over his people. What, what does it mean that all of this has happened? It doesn't seem like it's happened. It's, it's what, what we call inaugurated eschatology. The Jews were looking for a great day of the return of the Lord. It's the Lord's day when he was going to come. They, would, they expected that this was going to happen at the end of time. Okay, so that it happened right in the middle of time was unexpected. And everything's going to be over. And Paul tells that story. He's telling the Jewish story of God returning with a twist that the day of God's returning to Zion into this age, but everything's not over. The end hasn't come forward into time. The kingdom of God has broken into this age. Uh, The new creation has um, crashed into history, into the old creation. And we live now in the overlap of the ages. Um, And the 
so they're telling the story of God becoming king. God came as judge and redeemer into the now, and the new day has dawned. People would be forgiven and sin would be judged. The kingdom of God was here, and God has started to rule. He's inaugurated his rule. It hasn't come to full completion, but it has really dawned and begun. So therefore, it's new. It's different. Uh, but it's not yet everywhere, and it's not yet all over, but it's real in the here and now. And for those who believed in the message and for those who submitted his will, this is their life. The symbols of that new life is the unity and the holiness of the community that is following Jesus. In fact, and and this isn't like to be talked about, but I mean, Jesus is establishing a new Israel around himself. Everything he does prophetically is symbolic. He doesn't pick 12 for no reason. He picks 12 because there's 12 tribes. He wants people to get it. See what I'm doing? I got this little band of 12. We're the new Israel. Can you imagine? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. This is the new temple. The temple's here. It's crazy. Think of it. It's crazy. Anyway, but anyway, this community, this new community is, that is reconciled and that loves one another, this is a symbol that, of that new creation, of that story, of that worldview. See, look, this is the people. Um, and it's key to Paul, okay? So the community of believers, especially you can see this in Acts, and I love those guys. What are the Bible guys online? They do, uh, what are those... Anyway, they're really good. I forget the name of them. I can't remember it now. I'll remember it at some point. But Anthony has to watch them for his class. They're excellent. But they're exactly right. Acts of the Apostles is all about the community of believers replacing the temple. There's a new place where the Spirit dwells. It's not the temple. It's this people. Okay? That's, 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 that's what Acts is, that's what Luke is saying. And... Um, so that community is really, really important. It's the heaven-earth place now, okay? Um, that's where the presence of God is now happening in the gatherings and the relationships of the disciples of Jesus. There's a new, another symbol is this new social order. I think I mentioned this briefly last time, where people are all acting like we're family, There's no slave, there's no Greek, there's no servant, there's no free, there's no male or female. We're all a family. And this was in an egalitarian gathering of believers in Jesus. Leadership gets completely redefined as servanthood. This is not how leadership worked in the first century, okay? It was men who led, women and children, you know, they don't even really count them, okay? Especially like in Roman society, if you're a slave or a child, you, you, you're, you're nothing. And there's, there is social order. This, this community is like redefining all of that. Um, so leadership's redefined as servanthood. The cross is the turning point of all history where God and his servant Jesus dealt with sin and his enemies in a decisive way, ending exile, dealing with sin, and the reordering of that social structure is pretty remarkable. 
uh, in a world that's based on class. It's difficult to move up. I already said that. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, skip ahead. And he's doing all of this. All of this is happening. The powerful card, the super servanthood, the slaves were turned into brothers and sisters. The poor found their place among the rich. All were on level ground as God has always promised he was going to do, especially through his prophet Isaiah. So what were the practices of this worldview? Reconciliation was key. I don't even know how to say it. You know, we've spent too many years in a Protestant school. How do you say, what's the book, Philemon? How do, you, how do we say it? Philemon is how certain people say it. Right, Philemon, thank you. That's how the Baptists say it, and Baptist converts. And Philemon is how we say it. Augustine and Augustine's another one that's highly, we say it different. What was they saying? Oh, Philemon's about Onesimus, a slave, right, who's run away, who's become a friend. Paul sends him back with this letter in hand, appealing to Onesimus to accept him as a brother in Christ. So this is real tangible change, okay? And it must have worked out okay. It didn't have to because you could be crucified for, leaving, for doing what, what Philemon or whichever one, Onesimus, I forget who's the slave and who's the, anyway, but because we have the letter, right? That's a good sign. So this meant reconciliation in this community was key because new creation has started. That's, that's it, it has started. So anyway, that I won't, there's other practices, but that's probably the major one. Five questions, who are we? Well, we're the new creation people, the in Messiah people. We're the people of the new covenant. We're part of a radical new way of being human. It's almost like an experiment in a way of being human, where there's special communities in, you know, our modern times. It's, um, but it's important that all of these communities, whether wherever they were in the Middle East and throughout kind of uh, Greece and Rome at the time, that they were all part of this new family. Because when people come to find themselves in the Messiah, they're not two families. This is part of the whole Jewish-Gentile thing in Galatians that you read about, is there's not a Jewish one and a Gentile one. There's one. We sit at the same table and eat. Uh, There's one family in the Messiah. Uh, It's not just a new social experiment to see if we can all get along. It is everything's changed, new creation is dawned, we are one in the Messiah. So we live and behave and act that way. Where are we? Well, we're in the new creation. If anyone is in the Messiah, Paul says, new creation. (laughs) New creation. There's a new world that's come to birth right in the middle of the old and you're part of it. Uh, It's going up inside the old world which is still happening all around us. It's come to birth right under the nose of Caesar. He's not even able to stop it, but it's growing and it's going all over. Uh, Those in the Messiah versus those in the Caesar worldview, but we're part of this new creation. So what's wrong? Well, the old world is still kind of rumbling along. Caesar's world is still going along and Caesar still thinks that he runs everything. 
He's in for a surprise. And people are getting on with their lives and their aims and they're living how they were living. But Paul is saying there's a new life, there's a new world. We're citizens of heaven. The present world is the place that Jesus is transforming and claiming again as his own. It's an in-between sort of time. It's a contested period, right? Where there's great hope, there's great possibility. But Paul's vision is living already in the present in what God certainly will do in the future. So that's, um, anyway, it's wrong because Caesar still thinks he's in charge. The world's rumbling along. It's an in-between time. It's consistent. So what's the solution? Well, for a lot of people in Caesar's world, the solution is let's just reset the system. Let's keep everything going. But for Paul, it's not that. It's not all systems. Let's just keep going. It's a new world has come into being. Therefore, it requires us to live a completely different life. We are now that new creation. God has started it. So what time is it? Um, It's a contested time. The new age has started, but it's not fully here. It's an in-between time. What Jesus has started is one day going to be completed, but it's a dangerous time. It hasn't come to its fullness, but we're called to proclaim it and and to tell other people about it. We're... we're, we're, (laughs) The, the fact that they use the term evangelion in, in the New Testament, that word was specifically good news related to the proclamation as Caesar as king of the world. That's how that was used. So to use that word is to directly politically challenge that authority. That's what it did. <laughs> That's what they're saying. And for poor people, I mean, it was, I mean, it, it, was, it was amazing. Um, so Jesus is one day going to come back and complete all of this, but, so, so, but he hasn't yet, so it's a dangerous time. The sign in the present of that is this united people. Um, all the powers that have destroyed this creation, we're now living in this world. Your, your practice, our practice, is to be agents and signposts, I'm speaking to us now, in this new world. It's dangerous and it's difficult and we're going to get it wrong from time to time, right? But it's God's task, not our task, to be reflectors of his as best as, best as possible. Um. I had something about our vocation kind of turn on its head, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead here a little bit. I, I just want to say this. Um, when God created in the beginning that story of creation, he always had the intention to dwell in his creation. And modern scholarship, when they look at Genesis now, begins to understand that these six days of creation with this seventh day of rest is using temple building language. Temples were built in six stages. And then the final stage of that is you put the image of the God, whatever God it is, in that temple. 
the crazy thing about the Jewish temple is there was no, right, there wasn't an image there. The reason is, is that creation itself is a temple in monotheistic Jewish thinking. So it is a place where spirit and matter overlap. It's a heaven-earth place, okay? That's what it was made to be. God built this place so that he could dwell here and to put his image bearers in that temple. And we, that's us, okay? And we, that, anyway. Um, that's to be kind of contrasted with the split level sort of what, I, what, what I've learned is a platonic kind of Epicurean modern thinking. So in the Enlightenment, and I don't know if, Adam, you got to talk about this last time, but in the Enlightenment, what happened was basically we're kicking God out of this world <laughs> and we're, you know, we're kicking him either out of the house or up, up into the attic and we're tearing out the stairway and there's no elevator there, right? And in an Epicurean worldview, which is very old, even though we're enlightened, is that there are probably gods or maybe there are gods or maybe they're not gods. But they're way out there somewhere else or he's way out there somewhere else. So we don't really have to worry about that. So we're gonna be about the business of building this world as it is. And in effect, that's what the enlightenment, and, and if you go into enlightened thinking, this was a heavy influence on Thomas Jefferson on almost all the great thinkers in the Enlightenment time. We're going to be about building a world that is separate from God. And we live in the effects of that where there's a split between heaven and earth. This is earth and if there is a heaven, it's way out there somewhere, right? And um, God has allowed his space in the privacy of your heart, in the privacy of your home, but in the work of economics, politics, all the social order, God has nothing to do with that. Whether you're in the French kind of radical rejection of God kind of enlightenment, or if you're in the American kind of separation of church and state enlightenment with the thought of protecting religious freedom, it's the same, it's two sides of the same coin. It's the same philosophical thinking. And we live in the effects of that. So uh, it's fine for you to believe in God as long as it doesn't infringe on others' beliefs. But this is important to see. This is not the story of Genesis and Exodus and the monarchy and the prophets. So in this story, God or the gods are far away if they exist at all and they don't interfere in the day-to-day -day activities of this world. Um, and so the gospel now for us gets reduced to going to heaven, okay? Going to heaven when we die. And it's, and it's all over the place, but it's not monotheistic creationism, <laughs> okay? The goal of this life is not to, you know, Get to know Jesus, do the best you can so that when he comes back, you can check all the boxes that you've done the right thing, or at least as Catholics, you know, that we've, that we've done the right indulgences and all of those sort of things so that we can get out of here into heaven. 
The story of the Bible is about God returning and making things right on earth. And this thing is going to be completely transformed in a completely new way, in a resurrected way, and we're gonna get our bodies back and we're gonna dwell in the heaven-earth overlap forever. Okay? It's not the story of a God who made the world and said, well, I really jacked that up, so now here I'm gonna send Jesus to kind of fix what you guys made a mistake and I'm gonna kill him, and because of that, I'm gonna gonna cover all of you and then and then I'll get you out of here, okay, at the end of it. Rather, it's the other way around. The story is one of God, and you see at the end of the book, well, you see at the beginning of the book of creation that God has created this place for him to dwell. He has not given up on that. In fact, what he's done in Jesus is redeemed it, and he has restored our vocation. That is awesome, and that means we have work to do. And guess what? We have lots of opportunities to suffer and be persecuted for it, and that is the way of new creation. There is no other way. That's how it happens. Power has been totally redefined by Jesus. Here's inauguration as kingship. That's what it looks like now. And it's a death knell to all the other powers behind sex, money, and power. It's a death knell. All right. So the story and all is, is a, the story that we tell is like a five-act story. The first act is creation. The second act is the fall. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on either one of those. The third act is Israel, and this is what really gets skipped over. <laughs> Um, Israel was called to be assigned to the nations to bring the nations back to God. That was their vocation. Their vocation was to care for the orphans. A king that was a really good king in, in Israel was one who was benevolent and did a good job caring for the least of the people. He was called to be a good shepherd. He was called, in fact, to image God. Um, And instead, along the way, Israel falls into the same problem that all the rest of the nations fell into. So they're the bearer of the promise of God to Abraham and Moses and David through the monarchy. In the words of the prophets, they're heirs to all of that and they're bearers of the promise. But at the same time, it's a double-edged sword with David, who's a man after God's own heart, is also a a man who has a, a, a dark side in his you know, fallen to Bathsheba, and he's carrying the curse along with him. This is the high point of the monarchy. Solomon, a man full of wisdom, has taken on all these concubines, and he's carrying the curse within him. Moses, who's called to lead his people, isn't allowed to go into the promised land because he he doubts God, right? So it's a double-edged sword story. It's this, it has two strands to it. In fact, when Moses is speaking to the people at, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's, he's laying out death and life and says choose life, but he knows, like the way it's told is, he knows they're not going to do it. And um, 
in the second temple period, and by that I mean there's the first temple where God came with his presence, you know, uh, David designed it, Solomon built it, the Lord comes there and dwells in his presence. After all, there's, there, there's, there, the story's there, there's the story in Ezekiel, right? The prophet Ezekiel sees the temple and sees, oh man, it's so good to go through this, guys. But anyway, uh, the presence of God comes up on those whirling wheels, you know, you know those stories. In fact, as, as Ezekiel's looking on experiencing this with the God, this is crazy. But anyway, you got these angels with four faces, like a horse, an eagle, a human face, and wings under wings, and then they're on these wheels that move everywhere, and then this throne is sitting on top of it, and then one on the throne, read Ezekiel at the beginning, is somebody like, it's like an image like a human form. That's what he says. He can't even say that it was like a human form. It was like a human form, but it was an image like a human form. That's what he saw. And the presence leaves the temple, which means that God is no longer in the temple and the city is available now to be destroyed. And that's what happens. The Babylonians come in and the Assyrians and and they, they wipe out the temple. In the second temple, they rebuild the temple, right? Ezra and Nehemiah, we've done the whole men's retreat and they're fighting with one hand and doing the other thing and it's very, very manly. Um, But the presence of God when they rebuilt the temple never returned. And it was always a disappointment because they they built the temple, they're doing all the sacrifices, but God wasn't there like he was there in the early temple. So exile, and exile hadn't ended. Even though they got to rebuild the temple, they still had all these people that were ruling over them. Um, So the presence of Yahweh leaves, and it's because of the sins of the people. Um, Okay, I know I'm I'm over. Um, It was much disputed when you get to 500 years later. I'll I'll just go through quickly in the book of Daniel. They thought it was going to be 70 years of exile. And the angel Gabriel appears to the prophet Daniel, if you read the book of Daniel, which is written in the second temple period, some, you know, 200, 300 BC. And, um, and the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel in the book and says, how long is it going to be, Daniel asks, before the Lord returns? Is it set, we were thinking it's 70 years, and the angel says to him, 70 weeks of years. So 490 years. So you can imagine by the time that you get to Jesus that people with their calculators, whatever, they didn't have calculators, but are calculating in their heads, is now the time where God is going to do what he promised when he's going to come back and the age to come will dawn, when he's going to dwell, when he's going to bring all the nations. Everybody's going to see his glory. Is this that time or is it not? Um, For Herod and for the ruling class, the chief priests, the Sadducees, that class Everything at the time of Jesus was pretty good. We're in charge. The priest is in the temple. We're offering sacrifices. Things are pretty good. For the Pharisees, not, not so much. This is, this, whatever the Sadducees and Herod were doing, this is, this is wrong. But what needed to happen is we needed to do better at following the, the law that God gave us through Moses. And if we did that, 
if we followed the law of Moses better, then maybe we could help to usher in the time when, when he would come. For the Essenes, another group that they thought maybe John the Baptist was from, uh, for the Essenes, uh, it was actually the God is returning. He has returned, but it's like a surprise and people don't know it yet. It's like a secret. For the Zealots, it was, we got to pick up arms against the Romans and we got to do battle. It's, it's going to be a second Maccabean revolt. That's what's going to happen, and that's going to usher in the kingdom of God. And you have these Messiah figures that are being put forward that are then being crushed by the authorities. And Jesus fits right into that, right? Um, uh, So the story, though, at the time of Jesus is a story that's in search of an ending. It's like God God has promised he's going to do all this, but it it hasn't happened. Is it, you know, maybe it's not going to happen or maybe, it, maybe things are pretty good. You know, we, we have the temple or offering sacrifices or maybe we got to keep the law better and that'll usher it in or maybe we got to take up arms, but something's got to happen. It's not yet complete. It's not complete in the way that people uh, have asked it to be. We're still in the pit. We're still being ruled over. God hasn't come. You, they're counting down. Um, and that's the line of thinking that's picked up in the gospel writer's in their unique way, and they're not shouting that Jesus is God, though in fact they're saying that, but more important, what they're saying is Yahweh is returning just like he said he was. Isaiah, Ezekiel, the prophets, what he promised to Moses and through David, this is coming to completion. They're saying this is the return of the king to Jerusalem. This is what it looks like when God visits his people. And what does it look like? It looks like a party for sinners. In fact, we probably ought to party more. Because that's what Jesus did. And most of the world, unsurprisingly, and but shockingly most of Israel, they didn't recognize their time of visitation. They missed it. In spite of their hope that God would return to his people to set things right, that the virgin was going to be with child, that there would be a good shepherd, a servant, David, that was going to be Yahweh's presence. So Jesus is here, and what does it look like when he becomes king? This is the dawn of the new covenant, of the age to come. This is where heaven returns to earth, where the presence of Yahweh returns to the temple. God has come back and exiles over, and sin is being dealt with in this broken way. And as Isaiah said, who would believe what we have seen? What the arm of the Lord has done. A smoldering wick he did not quench. He was marred and afflicted, despised by men. It was written there and they never interpreted it that way. It's all there. So we as the church now, after Jesus has been inaugurated as king and has resurrected and inaugurated this new life, he has restored our vocation. We're not just called to happiness, but we're called to a throne. Jesus brought an end to exile, which in turn means the forgiveness of sins. So we're not being rescued out of this world waiting for a magic carpet ride to heaven. God is coming and he has brought heaven to earth. 
he is restoring what it means to be human. God always intended to rule and order this world through his image bearers. This is the whole story. In Christ, our role is that now we're being transformed, redeemed, and restored. And in the original creation, humans are called to shape and care for creation, to rule, meaning to organize and order and serve this creation, and they're called to multiply the earth and fill it. So being virtuous isn't about filling a bunch of boxes to say, hey, I've done what I'm supposed to do in order so that I can get somewhere. Human virtue is about taking on the character of Christ so that you can reflect it into the world. That's your, you're an actor now in the drama and your role is ambassador for Jesus. He's restored that vocation. We are, and he's given us authority to be able to do that. We're supporting actors for the Lord. And um, when the Lord wants to establish his rule, he doesn't send in the guns and the tanks. He sends in the meek, he sends in the patient, he sends in the kind and the peacemakers and the hungry for justice people. And before you know it, those humble, unassuming characters are building schools and caring for the poor and setting up hospitals to care for the sick. They're there with the lonely. They're partying with those who need to celebrate. They're encouraging those who need courage. So virtue for us is about making habits of the new creation, the life of Christ, so ingrained that they become second nature to us. We become the images of Christ, called to bear his light into a world that is in desperate need for good news, of hope that there's another way. The Beatitudes lay that out. Colossians 3 lays those out if you want to read it. At the end of the day, the way of new creation is a way of service. It's a way of humility. It's a way of selflessness. The way of resurrection is the way of Golgotha. This is what power, victory, and coronation as kings and queens in the new creation looks like. And we are called in such a way that, to live in such a way that our lives shine the stage light right on Jesus. We're called um, to play our part, to be creative servants, able to follow rules, not just to follow rules and not just to follow our hearts, but able to follow Jesus and be his image. So how do we do that? Only through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel says that the Lord promised, the promise is that in this new day and new creation, he is going to remove their stony hearts and give them supple, fleshy hearts. And he's going to write the law in their hearts and put his spirit within him. That's the, that's the time we live in. So through that empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, which has been lavished upon us in Christ, we can do that. And I hope this Advent is a time for me and for each of us to have some heart work done, to return to the Lord in repentance and ask that we be filled with his spirit so as to live our vocation and purpose on the earth as in heaven. To be the heaven-earth overlap people as his new people, as his light, as his salt. 
And with that, I think we're about ready to look at the call of what it means to be the heart of the Redeemer and what the Lord is about there in the world today, but that will be for next time. So thank you for listening. God bless.